So we often talk about going to church. We, we, we say, I'm going to go to church. Or we ask the question, where is your church located? Or even I, I, I say, welcome to Hope Church. Like it's this place, right? That's what we say. We, we think of the church as a place. We think of the church as a building. Well, it's interesting because it wasn't until A.D. 313, around the reign of Emperor Constantine, that the church had any buildings to meet in. They didn't meet in buildings, they met in homes. And they were house churches. And so the, the location wasn't the big deal. It wasn't where was the church. It was that we are the church. And that's exactly what the New Testament says. The New Testament says we are the church, not this building, not this place. But we use we use um, prepositions and we use our language to describe it as, oh, I belong to that church over there or I'm, I'm going to this church over here. When in reality, this is just a building. When 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 the Christians aren't here worshiping, it's it's a building. It's not the church. It's when we gather together, when we assemble, when we come together in Christ that we become the gathering community. But we are the church. We are the church. The church is not a building. It's a gathering of Christians, assembled, the assembled followers of Jesus Christ. It, a couple of descriptions in, in the Bible causes a new community or a family. Family is a great way to think about it because when you think of it, you say, well, where's your family located? And you go, they're kind of graduated. They're like, some's here, some are here. They're, the family's all over the place. So it, in the same way, when we think of the church, we need to think of the family. And when we leave this building today, we're, the church is leaving the building. <laughs> the church isn't staying here, it's leaving the building. So this weekend, what we want to do, if you haven't figured this out yet, is we want to look at this idea of the church. And what does the Evangelical Free Church believe about the church? What are their, our basic beliefs? And this whole series is majoring on the majors, and essentially it answers the question, what are the most important things that a church could believe? What are the the fundamental doctrines that are taught in the scriptures that we say these are these are pretty important. These describe who we are. It describes who God is and what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus Christ, what we believe about our man and our condition, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, and then what we believe about the church. So that's what we want to look at this weekend. And these are the beliefs that make us who we are. Uh, so what do we believe about the church? I want to read you the free church statement. Um, and then we're going to talk about, we're going to go to a passage and just kind of apply it. But this is what the evangelical free church, or what we call the EFCA, or the free church, believes of the statement of faith about the church. We believe that the true church compromises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which he is the head. The true church is manifested uh, is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. And I just want to stop there for a minute and say, don't stand before God one day and if he says, why should I let you in heaven? Say, well, I was a member of Hope Church. He's not going to be awfully impressed by that. But that does mean that if you are, if you want to be a member of Hope Church, you need to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. 
goes on to say the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are visibly and tangibly, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not a means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Notice key phrase. They are not a means to salvation. There are other churches in this community that say, unless you're baptized, you're not saved. You're not a Christian until you're baptized. We believe baptism is important, but it's not necessary for salvation. All right? So that what we want to do this, this weekend is we can't examine every aspect of, bapt, or of, of the church. We can't, we can't look at every aspect of the church. We can't do that. We don't have time. can't look at every aspect of what the statement says, but we're going to look at uh, uh, one concept that is truly in, found, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This is, if you don't have a Bible, we have these chair Bibles, page 896, page 896. Ephesians 2, we're going to start at verse 11. And essentially what the weekend is about, uh, the message of the weekend is this. We who used to be outsiders have been brought in. We're now insiders. The outsiders have become insiders. And the question is, how did that happen? Well, that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Let me read you that passage uh, right now. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In other words, you can practice religion, but your heart may not be in it. Have you ever been part of that where you've gone to church, you've... you've uh, been faithful, but your, your, your actions were right, but your heart wasn't in it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do the actions, but you want both. You want to do it for the right reason, and you want your heart to be in it. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But notice, but now... You have been united with Christ Jesus once you were far off from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are, notice, members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him by becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Holy Spirit. So uh, a couple things we want to draw from this passage. First one is this. 
as Christians, we're all insiders. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as a Christian, you are now an insider. Now, there was a struggle in the nation of Israel. We need to go back because what Paul's talking about in this passage, he's talking about history. He's talking about the nation of Israel. So Israel, God called this little nation Israel, and he called them to be a light to the nations. In other words, he gave them his law, he gave them instruction, he gave them a leader, and he said, now live your lives as though you belong to me. And as you live your lives as you belong to me and you follow the Ten Commandments and you follow the law, you will be a light to the nations. And they will look at you and say, we want to be like you. In fact, we want to worship your God. And uh, that was actually what the plan was supposed to be. Uh, they were to be more righteous. Um, and, and, and it wasn't like God chose them because they were the biggest nation. Because they weren't. They, was, they were very small. He didn't choose them because they were more righteous. They weren't more righteous. And, and you say, well, why did God choose them? He says, Scripture says, he just chose them. He just chose them. He says, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest. I didn't chose you because you were the, the, the more righteous. I didn't think chose you because you were better. I just chose you. And so, but he gave them a, a mandate. And instead of obeying the law, the Ten Commandments, and being a witness to the Gentiles, the law became a way for them to look down on the Gentiles. They looked down on the nations. They basically called, you know, looked down on them as heathen. And, and that's what the law can do. The law is meant to show us our, our, our neediness. It's meant to show us that we don't measure up. But instead, what we can do is we can allow the law to make us more righteous than other people. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the law created within them a sense of superiority and pride and even hostility. Uh, you know, in, if you read in John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are heading... Uh, through Samaria. And nobody ever went through Samaria. Jews didn't go through Samaria. They avoided it like the plague. But they decided to do that because Jesus had to meet a woman at the well who was a Samaritan, who was hated. Her race was hated by the Jews, despised by the Jews. But God wanted his people in the Old Testament to be the godly society, that what, what a godly society could be, a witness to the world, a light to the nations. Um, instead, what they did is they used the, the law to, to be kind of like despise the Gentiles, to look down upon them. Now, by the way, this happened in the early church because God created his, his church. And he says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Go and be witnesses to all the nations, <laughs> translation Gentiles, and, and, and take the gospel to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, Peter, Jerusalem, day of Pentecost, to Samaria, that's half-breeds, both, they married, you know, they was, these were Jews that, mentored, that married uh, outside Gentiles, so, and to the uttermost parts of the world, right? So that's the Gentiles. So the gospel's supposed to, if you throw a stone in, it's like rings, right? So the gospel, you know, Jerusalem is like where the stone hits. And then the rings of the gospel were supposed to go out to all the nations. Well, what the early church thought was, well, the gospel's to go all the nations, but we were to find all the Jews and all the world. So this is, you read through the book of Acts, the first 15 chapters, 
And the, the Jews are struggling to do, what do we do with these Gentiles? And essentially, because they received, the Gentiles received the same Holy Spirit as the Jews, they're in. And, and, and it was like a light went on with the Jews and they said, oh, they're believers too. They, they're part of this new community we call the church. And so they struggled with the same thing because they were looking down on the Gentiles. And it came down to Acts 15 where they had the, the Council of Jerusalem and they basically said Gentiles are in and they don't have to follow the law. And so even Peter had to be kind of convinced about this truth of the gospel. So it was, an, it was, a, it was a, this breakdown in the wall of hostility. The early church, though, finally got it. Gentiles were included and they were the outsiders and they were brought in. And again, you can read about that struggle in the first chapters of the book of Acts. But we're, uh, we are all in because we call on the name of the Lord, because we're baptized in the body of the church. We were outsiders and we've been brought in. That's what Paul is talking about in the passage we read. Here's the problem. Here's where the glitch comes in. We want to earn our way in. We want to buy our way in. We want to try to deserve to be part of God's family. And so we create a resume. We say, well, God, I go to church. God, I believe in you. God, I give my time. God, I give my money. God, I do all this stuff for you so that one day you owe me and you need to let me in. But notice what Paul says in that passage. He says this, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. So it's not what we have done. It's what Christ did for us on the cross. That's the point that Paul's making. So how do we attempt to come to the Father on our own terms? Because that's the biggest problem we have. Most people will miss heaven, not because they... they sometimes, some will come you know, miss it because they just, they just say, I, I, I don't think there is a heaven. But many people will miss heaven because of pride. They don't want to come to a place and say, I need help. They want to say, you know, I'm not so bad. I'm better than this person. I do enough. I think I do enough. I think I should be included. And and there's a certain amount of pride that comes with that. How do we attempt, though, to come to the Father? Because he says, now all of us can come to the Father. But he says, the way you come to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus said the same thing. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But there's a whole lot of people that are trying to come to the Father and they're not coming to the Father through Jesus. They're trying to come to the Father uh, in other ways. Here's what it comes down to. Most of us, if not all of us, are trying to find our acceptance and identity in this world. I think we're all born with a desire to prove that our lives matter, that we're valuable, and that we deserve to be loved. And sometimes that works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we're raised in a great family where we're loved and we know we're loved. Sometimes we're not. So what do we do? How do we find our acceptance with each other? We find our acceptance and identity through a lot of different things. Sometimes we find it in relationships. So you say, I just need to find the right person. If I marry the right person and, and they love me and accept me, then I'll feel good about myself. Or... You say, I just need to have a family around me, people that love me and care for me and support me and I'll feel good about who I am. Um, or you say, I'm going to seek acceptance through uh, academics. I'm going to do well in school because if I do well in school, people will say, wow, you're a good student. You must be you know, significant. You, your life matters. Or you, you get a degree. Or maybe on the athletic field, you're a good athlete and 
people always look to you and say, wow, you're a good athlete. You're valuable. You're worthwhile. There's something of value in you. Or on the stage as a musician or an actor. So we look to all these things to find acceptance and value. Some of us look to our careers and say, well, if I can just do well in business and, and be known in my business community as an as a, as a, a achiever, you know, then, then I'll feel good. Or an artist or a craftsman, if I can just do that. In other words, we're generally in our society known by what we're good at. And we feel good about what we're good at. Well, what if that's taken away? What if you're an athlete and you blow your knee out? What, what if, what if you're, you're, you're running a business and, and you go bankrupt? What if you're working in a job and you lose your job? What if you have this family and it's not so cool and supportive? What, what if you're in this relationship and it's blowing up right before your eyes? Now what do you do? Where do you get your value then? And see, here's the problem. We're generally known by what we're good at. The problem is, C.S. Lewis says that we can be proud of being better than others. See, we're not, our pride doesn't come because somebody, you know, other people are good athletes. We, our pride comes because I'm better than them. I'm better than them. So we tend to look down on others who don't measure up to our standards. We can be judgmental of their perspective and viewpoint. We can say, well, why do you even behave that way? That's, that's just not right. And we look down upon them. That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. What's happening in this passage is Paul is saying that the Jews who were given a special privilege to live as light to the nations failed because they felt that they were superior. And even the early church struggled with that. Well, we're superior to the Gentiles. We don't really care about them. And they didn't get what God was trying to show them. Think about this. When is a person early and when is a person late for an appointment? Some of you are here and you say a person is late when they're not 10 minutes early. Some of you are saying, you know, if you're around 15 minutes close to either be at the beginning, but usually after, that's okay. Do you know there's, you know, you go down to Haiti, you go down to South America, you go to other nations, and things start when they start. And if you're American, it drives you bananas. You go, what's wrong with this culture? Do they not have a watch? Do they not know how to keep time? Why do things... And it starts it's five minutes late. We haven't started yet. What are we going to do? So we tend to look down and say, well, Americans would never allow that. We start pretty close to being on time. And we'll finish close to being on time unless Matt, Pastor Matt gets a little long-winded. Because that's what we do. We're not like them. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told about two men who went up to the temple to pray? He says the first one had this raucous, vibrant parade. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Everybody watched me. I'm going to pray. And he prayed out loud. Lord, I thank you that I don't do this. I mean, he was a righteous man. You read his prayer. It's a pretty good prayer. I mean, most of us would say, I've not done that. I've not done that. I've not done that. This is a pretty righteous guy. But he's bragging about it. And then he looks over and he sees this guy that basically crawls in on his hands and his face before, the, before God. And, he, and he, he looks over and he says, and I'm so glad I'm not like him. 
The man crawling there basically says, sorry. The man crawling there says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I messed up. I don't measure up. I'm not good. I could never be like him. I'm always going to fall short. And Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray that day. One man left forgiven. What was Jesus saying? See, what Jesus was saying to that parable is the same thing he's saying to us. The gospel tells us that our identity is received, it's not achieved. Your identity is not achieved, it's received. What do I mean by that? That means that God doesn't accept you or reject you based upon your performance, status, or accomplishments. Remember what we said about the nation of Israel? We say, why did God choose them? Did He look down and say, wow, what a great nation. What a moral nation. What a wonderful, loving nation. No. What a beautiful, big nation. No. He just chose them. It had nothing to do. They did not earn it. They did not deserve it. He just chose them. Flat out just chose them. See, His love is is not based upon our performance. And by the way, how dare we say that about Jesus Christ? We're going to probably have to get a different mic here. Alright. I'm looking. How about this one? Okay, how's that? Okay, I guess that works, right? The point I want you to see is that his love's not based upon our performance. Um, and if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, your identity is not, it shouldn't be, that I'm a great athlete or I'm a great artist or I'm really good at this or I'm really good at this. That's secondary. Your main identity is that you're a son and da- or a daughter in Christ, that you're part of the family of God. Your main identity is being a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is what will truly set you free. Now, how does that set you free? How does that set you free? Here's how. What does that do for you? When you find your ultimate identity in Christ, you look at things from a very different perspective. You can no longer look down upon others. You can't look down on them. Because you, you have a very different perspective. You, can, you don't look down because you're too humbled. You're too enlightened. You're too insightful by the gospel to look down on anyone because you realize that you didn't get there because you were deserving or good or decent or chosen because God said, wow, look at you. You were just chosen by Him. That's it. See, the gospel is the leveling force within the Christian community. Very different people are brought together because we have one thing in common. We've all been brought to the, we've all been brought to the cross and we've been confronted with two incredibly important truths. The first one is that we are all sinners and we all are in debt to Jesus Christ. Without Him, we are dead. We're, we're hopelessly lost sinners. That's the first truth. The second truth is the other side, that we are loved, not because we're good, not because we've done anything. We're just loved. He loves us like a son or a daughter. We're sinners and we're sons and daughters. At the same time, 
And so when we come there, we realize that we haven't done anything to deserve this or earn this. The gospel provided the only way for outsiders to become insiders. That's the point of Paul, what Paul's making Philippians. The gospel levels the ground. He used three pictures. It's very interesting. Notice he talks about citizens, that we're fellow citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20 uh, magnifies that. And uh, that speaks of as God is our king, okay? That we're citizens. So we're no longer just out doing our own thing. Now we've been brought into this citizenship, right? Secondly, we're family. We're members of his family. Uh, we are family. We all have family duties to support the family. We are Christians having a responsibility to the welfare of the family. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ, joined by Christ. We have been brought to a new family, so now we call God our Father. He's not just our King, He's our Father. And then He goes even further. He says we are a whole building, the building blocks. We are essentially the temple. In a sense, the, the, now God is within us, we, with, among us. So notice each picture gets more connected, more intimate, more focused. And so this American idea that we're out there doing the John Wayne, I'll live my life any way I want, I'll be, have no connection to other Christians, I'm just going to live it on my own, just me and Jesus going, going. No, no, no. You do not understand the New Testament if that's the idea you have. What, what God has said is, I'm creating a new community, a family. I am bringing you together in a very close proximity so that you can be the light to the world and be a family for one another. And that's point number two. As Christ followers, we have a unique connection and a responsibility to each other. And what does that mean? It means that all cultural, generational, and ideological barriers are gone. We are connected now to people who are very, very different than we are. <laughs> That's why you can go down to a really rough neighborhood in New York City, and you can go to a church there where they worship Jesus Christ, and they may be very, very different than you are, but you are part of that family. You are connected to them. There's an eternal connection that you have with them. That means you can go to China. You can go to South America. You can go to Europe. And you can worship with those other Christians. And you have a connection with them. Even though you can't speak their language, they're your brothers and sisters. And you don't look it down. Because we have one spirit dwelling within us that unites us all together. It also means... That we have a we have family we all have family responsibilities for one another and the health of the family. Now this has incredible implications. If you're part of the family, you have family duties and responsibilities. Your life is not your own. This new connection to Jesus Christ and to other brothers and sisters in Christ flies in the face of this American pop culture of 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 uh, individualism. What do I mean by that? Think about how your family operates. All right, so your family, I'm assuming you have family rules, right? There's certain family rules that everybody's agreed to these rules, okay? You also have, uh, in other words, if you're part of a family, do you do whatever you want, whatever you want? No. 
Because you have a responsibility to your family, whether you're an adult, a parent, or whether you're a child, you have a responsibility to your family. You have a responsibility for the language you use. You have a responsibility for how you treat one another. You have a responsibility for doing chores, different things like that. And and that's the second thing. As a family, you have family chores and responsibilities. I mean, it's not like some of the family members are supposed to, you know, do their chores and then the other person, oh, no, Johnny, don't worry about it. You don't have to do anything, just the rest of us. No, everybody has chores. Now, again, some of you are thinking too deeply. And you're thinking to your family, and you're going, well, I did all the chores, and it seemed like other people weren't pulling. You're making my point. That's my point. It wasn't right. It's not right in a family, and it's not right in a church family. Okay? It's the same thing. See, do you as a family expect everyone to contribute to the health and well-being of the family? Of course you do. Now, again, when they're little, they're not contributing a whole bunch. But essentially, little by little, they're contributing to the health and the well-being of the family, right? And and do you as a family hold each other accountable? Of course you do, Johnny. Why why are you in late? You know, the parents have responsibilities to each other and to the kids. They need to be held accountable to that. The point I want you to see is this. If the church is a family, which it is, then we have responsibilities towards one another. You cannot be part of the family and just say, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm not going to be connected and I'm not going to be accountable and I'm not going to contribute and I'm going to just kind of come and go when I please. I'm sorry, I don't find that in Scripture. It's it's not there. That's not what a church is. You say, well, I'm not a member of hope. Well, okay, you don't have to be a member of church because, frankly, the Bible doesn't say anything about membership. But it does say that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not part just of the universal church. You're part of a, you should be part of a local church and you should be contributing and you should be giving and, and looking out for the health and well-being of the local church. You, and if it's not here, I'm okay with that. Just go somewhere where you are doing that because one day, Dad is going to ask you what you did in the family with the time and the talent and the treasure that he gave you. Did you use it for the family? Did, were you responsible within the family? Did you promote the health and well-being of the family? Dad's going to ask us that question one day. You get my drift here, right? Okay. So think about that, because this, this is going against our culture. Our culture says, do what you want, whenever you want. Don't worry about any commitments don't worry about, you know, stretching yourself. Don't worry about serving. Be served. That doesn't work in a human family. It doesn't work in the church family. It doesn't work. And it's not meant to be that way. All right. Point number three. There's only one inferior race. Now, wait a minute. Didn't I just get through saying the, the, la- the ground is level, the, go- the gospel levels the ground, it doesn't matter where you, you know, where you are, and you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, it's Christ's gift to you, and then you go and you drop this, this bomb. There's only one inferior race. Well, Paul's argument was that hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles is gone. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles, seeing them as inferior, verse 14. Well, how did Jesus defeat the hostility? How did he do that? How did Jesus break down the wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles? 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So Jesus took our sin. He took the hostility. He took our place. He wasn't hostile. He took hostility. So here's the point. Since we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, we are now now called to be agents of peace and reconciliation to the world and to the local church. That's your role. You're part of a family. You're not on your own. And so as you connect to the family and you become a part of this new community that God calls his family, when he calls you son and daughter, then we are brothers and sisters and we have responsibility to each other. And as we live out that love for one, that's what Jesus prayed for before he left his disciples. May they see the love that you have for one another and may the world see that and may it be a witness to them, a light to the world. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. The church was called to be a light to the world. Well, how are we a light? By how we treat one another, by how we behave towards one another. Now, I said there's only one inferior race, and there is. The only inferior race is the human race. We're all inferior. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And not just saved and forgiven from sin, but given the gift of the Holy Spirit and brought into this new community and made part of the family of God. That's what Jesus did for us. What's your relationship to the local church? Do you come and go as you please? Are you contributing to it? Are you serving? If you're part of the family, there's family duties. And so you have to say, what, what role, God, do you want me to have? And if it, again, if it's not here, I get that. If you say, oh, I'm not connected here. That, okay, find a church, get connected, and serve that family. What's your, what's your position? What's your role? How are you serving? Because one day, Dad is going to ask us, how do we do? How do we do with, with, with modeling the gospel in our day-to-day life in the world? And how did we do with his bride? That's another picture he calls the church, his bride. So when you criticize the church, you realize you're criticizing his bride. Be careful about that. There are no perfect churches. We'll talk about that next weekend. There are no perfect churches. There are no perfect people. But we are a family. And there are no perfect families, by the way. There are all those flaws and all those problems. But you know what? The goal of the family is to come together and to serve each other and to model the light of the gospel to the world. How are we doing? How are we doing? Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, this concept's pretty straightforward to understand. It's hard to do. Uh, you tell us in Scripture, there's a lot of uh, statements. Love one another. Support one another. Uh, bear one another's burdens. Uh, pray for one another. Uh, all these things we can't do if we're not connected. We can't do these things if we're not part of a family. We're just bouncing around. Help us to be contributors 
and to be a witness to make not only our world a better place, but this, this church, this local church a better place because we're part, we're part of it. We're part of this family. We're serving here. And Father, thank you for bringing us into this family. Thank you for giving us uh, status change from outsiders to insiders. Thank you that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility because he gave his life. He died so that we could live together. But sometimes I I wonder, Father, if we're doing a, a good job at that. Sometimes I wonder if we're allowing, not allowing the gospel to level the ground and we become proud and arrogant and judgmental of others who don't do things exactly like us. Sometimes I think we're not being the church we need to be because we're not really serving. We're not really taking responsibility to connect, to make this family a better family. This building is just a meeting place, Father. We are the church. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.